Hello. Good morning. If you would um, allow me the license to divigate a little bit before we get to the prayer, I would like to just say what um, a blessing it is to be honored by this congregation and by the leadership here. And it was a surprise uh, providing me with the prayer and the gifts for um, the finishing my degree, my upper division degree. And the reason why it's so significant for me here and now is because I'm not someone who looks for approbation and approval. I don't need the pat on the back to say you did a good job. But for me, it depends on who's saying it, you know. Um, for instance, I hold my father's opinion in high esteem. And so whenever my father looks at me, says, son, you did a good job, you know, it really kind of gratifies me. I also hold the leadership in this church in high esteem. Uh, the men who make up the elders and the pastor I come to for advice and for wisdom and in the environment and the uh, circumstances I'm in, it is a blessing, as Tom said, you know, to um, have the counsel of wise men around you. And so to have the encouragement from Alan, who was constantly asking me in a loving way, hey, you're finishing up? Or from people in this church in a very encouraging way and loving all my family whenever you show up, I can tell you it's precious to me. And so I would like to thank you for that. Um, um so if I can collect my thoughts, let's go ahead and open a prayer and we can get started. Dearly Father, Lord, thank you for this time, Lord. Thank you for the way that, Lord, that you provide us with unity and closeness with people who love you, who keep you central to all that we do and all that we say and all that we think. And our desire is, Lord, to know you better, to grow closer to you, to understand the purpose and the calling you have on our lives in a given situation in a given day progressively heading towards that moment, Lord, in which we stand in front of you and, Lord, hopefully receive the purest approbation we possibly can to enter into the joy of your Master. God, in all that we do today, let it be purely you. Because whenever it's purely you, Lord, it's life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, well, hopefully that's done with. Um... I have been in the college environment for a long time. I've actually well, calculated that in education-wise, going from kindergarten up to the point I am right now, I have been either in a teaching environment, teaching, or receiving education. I took one year off. I have been in college or classes for a long time. I know what it is to be with other people, chit-chat. I know a lot of the faculty members of Florida State, at FAMU, at Tallahassee Community College. And I'll tell you this. Um, I often have students who have graduated come up to me and like, what's the one piece of advice that you can give me? What's the one piece that you can help on my next process and my next step? What is it? And that's what I'm going to share with you today. What's the one piece of advice I kind of like give students, whether or not they're secular or Christian, it typically tends to be the same thing. And I'll give you the title of today's sermon. It's simply that of testing and time, concerning the aspect of when you're tested and the time that you have available for you to study. Now, that not just applies for a given test that you can have in a class, it applies towards the time that you have here and the tests that we go through. I have people come and ask me often, how do you do it? And there's nothing aggrandizing about it. There's nothing special about me. I am actually an innocuous man. There's nothing super special about myself. But they ask me, David, how is it that you finished the doctorate? You have six children. Your wife lives in Gainesville. You commute back and forth. There's a period in which you had a couple of chronically ill children. How is it that you finished it up? And well, I get back to, well, it's timing and testing. How is it that you use your time and how is it that you prep for what the things in this life to come and who do you rely on? There's a saying or a statement by Jonathan Edwards that I keep central 
and so many things I consider and think about. Whenever my heart feels either dejected or I'm in a situation where I don't feel comfortable in expressing my Christian faith in a classroom environment, this one statement that Jonathan Edwards stated is, he says, Resolution 1, I will live for God. Resolution 2, if no one else does, I still will. It doesn't matter what my situation or circumstance is. I have a strong clarity of my function and my purpose. And what is it that will cleave that hope away from me? Well, let's go and get started. I am going to uh, be going through a couple of scripture verses, a couple, hopefully a large amount, because I would like to found anything that I say in the Word, but I will tell you certain sections that I would like you to turn to. And I want to first establish something very clear. The first one is that uh, our time here passes by a lot quicker than we think. Uh, for people who tend to be older or elderly, they can attest to that, and the Bible also attests to that. The time we have here is finite. In James 4.14 it says, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Or Psalms 102.3, For my days have been consumed in smoke and my bones have been scorched like, an earth, like a hearth. Or Psalms 144.4, uh, verse 4, Man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. It's interesting to me the way that, um, as Christians, we can respond to the question of death. And this isn't a morbid talk, and I'm not going to focus on death at all. But the reason why is it takes a level of wisdom to understand that your time here is not forever. Uh, the younger you are, the more time you believe you have, and typically that's true. But tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow will not always be there. And it's important lesson to have early. And it's interesting to note that if you look at the establishment of um, man in the Garden of Eden, that wasn't necessarily the case. God did not necessarily put a shelf life on man at the time. If anything, they had access to the tree of life. And the idea of fellowship in God, purely in God, in God, what is it going to be after this life is over? That's it. Eternity with him. What could be greater than that? But once man fell and they sinned and they bit the, the fruit, what did God do? He put limitations then on our time. Um, in Genesis 3, 22 through 23, then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now we might stretch out our hand and take away from him the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which it was taken. So that which was given life was removed. Also in Genesis 6.3, it clearly states that the Lord says, My spirit shall not strive in man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. Those are both limitations. Limitations that are given on how long you're going to live. And you can stop and think, why is that? Well, because the heart is inherently evil. We're going to get to this in a second and talk about that. <clears throat> but if you look forward to it, I remember as a young man, one of the strongest lessons I was able to learn is to realize that unity is not necessarily a good thing. It depends on what the unity is for. Unity in God? Fantastic, I'm there. Prayer, praise and worship amongst believers. We know what happens when two or more are gathered. What a beautiful thing there is. But I've seen men unified in some terrible, you know, kind of like uh, desires. Man, if you get people together who really kind of like have evil intent, the more you have and the more unified they are, the more of a force they are to be dealt with. In Genesis 11, I want to read this now. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shimnar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and turn them thoroughly. 
And they used bricks for stones, and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heavens, and let us make for ourselves a name, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole world. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they, have all, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. A couple of things I want to bring up in Genesis 11. The first one is I find it fascinating that the Lord came down to see the city. I mean, it says he came down to see the city. I guess he was curious or impressed, I don't know, right? But he came to see it and to observe it. And the statement that follows is even more curious to me when he says, and this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they have purpose to do will be impossible to them. That if they're united in this goal, what is impossible to them? And he stopped and like, wait, building the Tower to Heaven is impossible. Right? There's no way. Have you seen the Burj Khalifa? Tallest building in the world? Quite impressive. It's not even close. Right? So the idea of looking at this is like, well, what's the statement about? Well, I don't want to comment too, uh, speculate too much on this. But I wouldn't be surprised after the men had built the tower, tower that they got to the top and they realized they couldn't get to heaven, but they would have claimed they had. And that they knew what God wanted. And that they would tell everyone what it was. And it would have been a perversion of God's word. And so God stopped it. The idea here is that we have a limited amount of time on this earth. It's been by design. Imagine, I can't for a second imagine what would happen if we would live forever. The things that we would have accomplished in the name of sacred evil. Things that are happening right now on this earth. That the limitation of knowing that you have finite time. And it's a gift. And a gift for what? Because God's the one who provides it. Time is fleeting. Let's talk, look at the word fleeting for a second. It means passing swiftly, vanishing quickly, transient, transitory. That's a definition that you can find in the dictionary. And I was really interested to see the last part where transient, transitory. You know what the word transient means, right? It means not your final stop. It's a continual in movement. So to notice that time is fleeting is to say, yes, this time is fleeting, but it's not the end. Death is not the finite part. And that's what's within the dictionary. Now, when we look about it and we see it fleeting for a little while, what is this time that we have on this earth compared to eternity? We can't even understand necessarily that word. And what it means, I mean, we can understand this corporeal life, but when we're taught to be spiritually minded, I th- uh, because we know that life is in it. Well, that's something that we have to constantly remind ourselves because we live in the corporeal world. But there's something to be learned here knowing that our time is finite because God calls us and tells us how we should live it. In Psalms 90, 12 it says, So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. A good way to gain wisdom is to learn how to each live each day with an internal perspective. In Ecclesiastes 3.11 it says, He has made everything appropriate in its time and has also sent eternity in their hearts. Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. C.S. Lewis understood this. He has a quote in which he says, If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. It changes the way that you perceive 
your daily activities. I remember I grew up in a large house. I had three brothers and three sisters. And we had a lot of Lord of the Fly moments when we were young. You know? Mom and Dad couldn't always be there. And, you know, we had an order to things. You know? And I remember there were sometimes I'd be in conflict with my brother and my father would call on me to serve him, would do something to bless him. I'm like, like heck, I'm going to do anything for him. It just isn't going to happen. And my father would say one simple thing to me. He's like, you're not doing it for him. You're doing it for me. And you stop for a second. Again, you get incredulous. Oh, I know what you're saying. I'm still going to do it then. But in the end, I'm doing it for my father. There are things that we do daily that seem to be innocuous, but even the smallest things, if you have a mindset of doing it unto God, it changes the heart of the matter. And that which is perceived to be innocuous isn't. Now I can sit here and it's like, well, it's great that once you accomplish a degree in something and graduate, that's something big that you desire approbation in. But God will show us areas in our lives, even the small things where he expresses his pleasure in us. Even the smallest things. The times in which I know, I'm like, you know, in this moment I know for a fact if I do the kitchen, it will bless my wife, but I don't want to do it right now. I have other things to do. I'd rather yell at my children to go do the kitchen than to do it myself. And I stop for a second, I'm like, this would please God to do it and bless my wife. It's true if you examine each little argument, each little interaction, each little minutia in that lens, it changes a lot, but the blessing about it is not burdensome. It's actually freedom. The reason why is when you start to see a loving unity within your children and your wife because of the small things you go out of your way to do to bless them, you start to see the small things in which they go out of their way to bless you. And you're like, wow, this is actually pretty nice. What a gift this is. Talking about the way we treat our time in the letter to Ephesians, Paul cautions in Ephesians 5, 15 through 16. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. One of the lessons I have learned as a father is I have to keep my children busy. There has to be a strong influence of the father and the mother on my children. I didn't have children to step back and let them just roam about. It's incredible the things that they'll find that I didn't even know were there if you give it to idle hands. You know? You know, the line, how do you even get that? I didn't even know we had that. And now there's like WD-40 everywhere, you know? But that also applies to us because the days are evil and the... And Significance of living wisely involves using our time wisely in what we're doing. To not just be wise, but to pursue a level of righteousness. To see that every second that passes can be used as an opportunity to edify and build and create life. I have learned this very clearly through my experience. It is much easier to destroy than it is to build. And I can't tell you how much conflict I even see amongst my children. I'm sure you've experienced this before. I've seen it with your children and grandchildren. You have one who's into construction. He has his building blocks. He builds this big old tower, and here comes the younger stable, and they destroy it. Right? And the gratification the younger one takes in the destruction and the heartbreaking like moments that he's like, no, I can't believe you did this to something that I built. We are given a lot of time founded on purpose, but not our purposes, not our desires, but on God's purposes, on what He wants for us, which is so much better than we could possibly imagine in any other capacity. That's why His instructions is, if you look clearly, how should you spend your time loving others in deed and in truth? 
In 1 John 3, 17, 18, it says, But whoever has, the wor- whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. How is it that you should spend your time in deed and in truth? Pursuing that plan that God has called you to do inherently. In Colossians 3, 23-24, whatever you do, do your work heartily. Ask for the Lord, rather for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive a reward of inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Now, how about work? I spend the majority of my time not with my family. Actually, not in the Word. Not in prayer. But laboring. I spend the majority of my day at work. Right? I do sometimes carry these little pamphlets with me. I memorize scripture verses in between moments. And I find that being important and precious. I think one of the best uh, prayers you could possibly have is in theology because I guess your uh, purpose and study is in the Bible, right? Oh, you have homework. Go read Ecclesiastes. So that's it, you know? So I'm sure that's a little bit uh, naive in the way that they pursue it. But, I mean, to find moments to spend time in the Bible. But needs must. I need to pay the bills. I need to provide. And that's a laudable thing. If anything the Bible talks about, how people need to balance their time with the way that they pursue money. But it's a significant and important question. The significance is not that we work ourselves to exhaustion in the pursuit of earthly wealth. And we know this. Together as brothers and sisters, that which you develop in this life, it will disappear and you can't take it with you. This is not a novel, uh, what do you call it, piece of wisdom. But it's the truth and it's incredible if you study antiquity, the emperors and the kings that tried their best to. They would take their servants, their wives, their concubines, their horses, their camels, their gold, everything to hope they have it in the next life. But guess what? When archaeologists find it a thousand years later, guess what it is? Dust. Exactly what the Bible calls it. And how much effort and time I give to it. And just a little bit of raise, you will make just such a difference. But brothers and sisters, let's be eternally minded. What is it that you do in this time that you have allotted in this life that's going to last for eternity? There are things that the Bible points to. In John 6:27 it says do not work for the food which perishes but for the food which endures to eternal life which the son of man will give you for on him the father God has sent his seal I have kind of responded to this consideration by a quote by Jonathan Swift Jonathan Swift wrote Gulliver's Travels a modest proposal if you've read those he says a wise person should have money in their head but not in their heart so to be able to balance a checkbook, be able to be frugal with your money, to know where to give it, that's important. It should be in the head, but not in the heart. If anything, one of the things I've started to know, and this has changed my life in all integrity, I'm telling you this, this is true, and God told you to test Him on this, is I've noticed that the more that I save in the things I desire, allows me uh, more freedom to give to areas that God wants me to give, like my tithing, like to other churches, like to other ministries. If you have any kind of job that provides benefits, you know when you have a 401k, as much as you put in it, maybe your institution will match it, but it caps out at a certain level. You can never cap out when you give for what happens afterwards in eternity. And God says, test me on this. 
You cannot give me. Test me on this. And I'm like, okay, I have a $100 bill here. This is denim. This is fiat. This is fake. You mean if I give this away and change my desires that God will bless me? Absolutely. And so there'll be times like, you know what, I really would like to have this. I'm like, well, the car's going to break down. It's going to depreciate crazy once you drive it off the lot. Why don't you get that little less of a car and that money that you have maybe give it to an area that God would want you to give it to. And believe me, you'll see it more than you can possibly imagine. I wonder what the description of crowns of glory looks like. Time is a gift and God has given it to us. Why? Why? It's interesting to notice that we have a finite time. God has given it to us as a gift, fine, but it's not a gift that you open it to splurge on, right? You don't do everything you want with it in any capacity that you want with it. If I wanted to sit down on my bark lounger and want Netflix all day long with popcorn and soda, not the good use of time. But God's given us time to actually, and I would like to, this is a point I would like to make, I would like you to think about this for a little bit, to test our stewardship. I believe the time we've been allotted to an extent is pretty much an aspect of a test. And we know that God tests. This isn't anything that's new. This isn't like, oh no, God doesn't test. Oh no, He does. He checks quality. He checks to see if character has been built in certain capacity. I can show you this pretty clearly. In uh, Psalms 26.2, David says to God, Examine me, O Lord. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind. Test my heart. Psalms 139.23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. Or instead of Psalms, let's go to an actual practical application with Abraham and Isaac. That was a test. To kill your son. It's a profound moment. It's a profound moment. Because Abraham is the description of how much he loves Isaac. Isaac is a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And the interesting thing is when it comes to the sacrifice of Abraham, it's not like he's going to have some intermediary do it. It's not like he's going to shoot him from, with an arrow from a distance. It's the father's hand that's going to pierce the heart. He will kill his son. But it's a beautiful story, right? Because in the end, when the hand is about to come down, the angel says, stop. Your quality has been shown. You do not have to sacrifice your son. The sacrifice is provided and the sacrifice came in. Nothing stopped the sacrifice of Christ, God's Son, for us. You know, and we're going to talk about Christ's example in a second. You know, the, to understand, I wonder if with that moment in Abraham, it's like, you know that feeling, Abraham, when you were about to kill that son, this is what I'm going to do for you. This is what I'm going to sacrifice for you guys, my son. And then we get to the point where we realize that our sins are costly, we can sin and believe we can sit in the sin in the dark and hide it well, and we do such a good job of that. That's what Adam and Eve did. When they sin, they try to hide it as best as they can. But we have to realize that it costs, and it costs something precious. It costs Christ's blood, which balances not just judgment but also an application of mercy, the propitiation that now we can look and be like, thank you. And with this time, I now have what is it that you would have me do? Whose example would you have me follow? And that example has been provided for us. Imagine, brothers and sisters, and I don't mean this cavalier, to consider our actions in such a capacity that we know that's going to lead to an unpopularity. It's going to lead to a rejection of this world, of us. But we know it's not against us. It's from the, against the one who sent us. We know that. 
But then to continue down and all these earthly possessions we accumulate, and like, but if I speak up, I'm going to maybe be unpopular. Maybe I'll be like targeted by the IRS. Maybe I'll end up losing my house or my possessions of all the things I've built with the time that we've had. But there are moments in which God wants to see, in which we're stuck in pressure situations, the quality that can emerge from it. And I'm telling you this, there's nothing that I apparently gained that builds quality in me. The one thing I can always point to is when I am ever in pressure. It's like a child running to a loving parent. That's what it is. It's not ability. It's not capability. If anything, I become a little bit more infantile. And I just quietly pray, like, Lord, I love you. I know you love me. If you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word translated test means to prove by trial. I know that you're aware that Paul would celebrate in his weaknesses. Because when he was weak, God was strong. When you're in the middle of it, it's hard to see. Just like a student sitting in class taking a test, when you're in the middle of the test and you have that anxiety, it's hard to see that this is to a benefit. You take a couple steps back, you endure, you push through, and then you have the celebration of the people around you looking at you saying, good job. You've studied. You've gotten it done. This is also identified in the parable of the sower. Jesus identified the ones who fall away as those who receive the seed of God's word with joy, but as soon as the time of testing comes along, they fall away. But we know that James says the test in our faith develops perseverance which leads to maturity in our work with God. Testing, brothers and sisters, is a blessing. And like I said, I have to be careful because there will be some times like, God, if I need to be humbled, humble me, but please be gentle. Same thing with testing. Lord, if I need to be tested in this situation, test me, but Lord, be gentle. But to really sit back and be in joy in it. James 1.12 Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive a crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. God has entrusted us with, his time on, with the time he's provided us on this earth. He is the one who directs us how to spend it. And I can promise you this. If you spend your time the way that God has directed you to do it, you will see the fruit from it. You know what the opposite of being productive in your time is? Wasting it. Let's talk about the nomenclature. Let's talk about the etymology, not etymology, the definition of the word waste. Two usages, verb or noun. The verb is to consume, spend, or employ uselessly, uselessly or without giving full value. To uselessly apply it, not utilizing its full value. It's kind of like this. You want to know what wasting is? You're super hungry. You're starving. Eat half your sandwich and throw the other half away. Like, but, but, I want it. No. Waste. The noun is to neglect instead of to use. So you have something available to you to use, but you neglect it. God has given you certain gifts, but you don't apply it. He has called you to step into a mission, but you haven't. We know the parable of the meanest when he had three servants. One of them buried the money that was given, and the others used it. We also know the uses of the prodigal son. 
right? What waste probably looks like. Even if it's spent on our pleasures, it can still be wasted. In Luke 15:31, it says, And he said to him, Son, and this is the end, excuse me, the end, when the brother has uh, gotten upset that the fatted cow had been sacrificed. He says, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours, but we have to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead, and he has begun to live, and was lost, and has been found. The reason why I bring this scripture verse into it is if something is lost, it can be found. That's the description. Lost, found. You lost something, you found it. Praise God, you found it. That's great. If anything, a big aspect of our mission is to understand the uses of loss, the lost souls that are out there, and return them to their first love, return them to God, and to show the way. They're in darkness. Let me show you the way back to the light. Point the direction. What happens if something is wasted? So if it's lost, you can be found. How about wasted? If something's wasted, can it be fully restored back to you? Because if we think of waste, we can think of trash. Can you ever get it back? Well, let me balance off the word waste with redemption. Redemption is to buy or pay off, clear payment to exchange. And as Christians, we understand the concept of redemption very well. Because we have been redeemed by Christ's Christ's sacrifice. In 1 Peter 1, 18-20, Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things, like silver or gold, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious, precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, for he was forsaken before the foundation of the oh, sorry, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, that has appeared in these times for the sake of you. So let's focus on the word redemption and talk about the word time, since that's what we're talking about. Do you know the Bible talks about redeeming the time? There's this phrase in there that talks about how to redeem your time. So if your time has been wasted, if you haven't used it productively, the Bible will show us how to then utilize it back. Well, David, that doesn't make sense. If you're in your 60s and you've wasted a great deal of your time, it's not like you can go back to your youth and take a drink and you're young again and try it over again. But let's set these verses and we'll talk about these explanations. Ephesians 5, 15-16 says, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Colossians 4, 5, walk in wisdom towards them that are without, redeeming the time. In both passages, redeeming the time is related to wisdom and how we walk and how we live. You can buy back your time by gaining possession of it. By looking at the things that you do on a daily basis, to look at the way that you're utilizing your the times that you spent. And this is closely related to studying. I know what procrastination tastes like. I know it very well. You know the line, what do we want? Procrastination, when do we want it? Tomorrow? You know? So, I mean, there are moments even within myself when I'm studying, reading, putting together a report, putting together work that, you know, I look, I'm like, you're procrastinating, you're procrastinating, you're procrastinating. Take your time back. We don't know how much time we're allotted. Only God knows that. He only knows how much time we have on this earth, and who knows the time that we have in order to impact what we do for eternity. In Psalms 139.16, For your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book we were all written the days that were ordained to me. Yet as yet there was not one of them. 
When God says we should redeem the time, He wants us to live in a constant awareness that time is ticking. You have your watches, right? If you have like an oil watch, you can hear it ticking away. It's ticking, it's ticking, it's ticking. I uh, understood um, the idea of being kind of like, uh, what's the word I can, like, well, let me rephrase, let me put it another way. I went to a private school the majority of my adolescence, and there was a principal there. And I got in trouble almost every other week. You know, I was a very obnoxious, precocious boy. You know what I mean? When I saw something, I wanted to touch it, do, uh, what do you call it, chase after it. It was hard for me to listen. Um, and uh, I would end up in the principal's office all the time. And he had this clock in the room that the ticking was just so loud. It was like almost like a gong hit every single time we tick. It would go like, dink, dink, dink. And he would leave me in there for like 30 minutes. So by the time he came to question me on the event of what happened, I was broken. You know? I thought of every excuse, every kind of like, uh, what do you call it, possible exaggeration that would apply. And by the end of it, I'm like, I just want out of here. I want to be clean. Students, do you know what it is when the instructor says five minutes left? And you're taking the test? You know that? Well, like that, that like almost like surge of panic and anxiety that builds up. Oh my gosh, I have five minutes left and I'm not done. I'm not finished. Let's hope this is a scantron. I can just fill in the rest of the bubbles. But short answer, I'm in trouble. I was in this Bible study one time where the person was presenting, handing out these little dots, these um, kind of like sticker dots. And he like said, stick that down on your paper. And he's like, this is your life. This is it. This is your life can be encompassed in this dot. Now try to draw a line that never ends. And to understand that what happens in this dot will affect the direction that will never end. I don't have it anymore, but I remember I grabbed that dot and I stuck it at the back of my watch. Since then, it's worn off and fallen apart. But I remember I would stick that dot in the back. And when the time was passing, it doesn't matter what the activity is. I'm like, dude, it's a dot. It's a dot. As David says, it vanishes quickly. It's like a whistle. It's gone. Examine yourself in this moment so that I wouldn't waste my days frivolously in pursuing something that's not lasting, but to be diligent in doing good in what the Bible commands us to do. I spend a great deal of time in Proverbs. Because Proverbs is all about wisdom. You know? If you spend time in uh, Ecclesiastes, it's not as upbeat. <laughs> you know? You know? It's a little bit more, I would say, uh, what's the word? Not right, pragmatic. I don't know what the right word is, but when you read Proverbs, it's like a loving teacher trying to, like, listen, do this and good will happen. Do this and good will happen. And what I want to do right now is I want to read uh, uh, part of uh, Proverbs 2 and then uh, part of Ecclesiastes 12 and actually show how both of those balance me out very well. So Proverbs 2, I'm going to read 1 through 15. For anyone who's graduating and looking on for the next step or someone just wants to spend time and encouraging themselves and applying wisdom, this is a good area to read. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search her for ads for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the path of justice, and he preserves the way of his godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice 
and equity and every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the path of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who delight in doing evil and rejoice in the perversity of evil, whose paths are crooked nor devious in their ways. This is clear cut. I can't tell you how it encourages me when I read it. Because it shows that there's an aspect of my desire that's chasing after God. You look at this. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge be shown to you and revealed to you, almost like a comforting blanket that's being wrapped around you. Compare that now to what the universities are putting out. It's kind of interesting. The universities love the word knowledge. They'll use knowledge. Left. They don't use the word wisdom too often. When I use the word wisdom, they're like, what? They really don't understand the difference between the two. But they're pursuing knowledge, and knowledge is crazy. I'm going to go on a brief divigation. We'll be finishing up in a second. So please stay with me. I think I've told you the story before. I was in a Shakespeare class at Florida State. Enjoyed Shakespeare. Didn't enjoy it after this class. Uh, so the professor was there, and he was analyzing Taming of the Shrew. And, of course, if you read Taming of the Shrew in a modern sense, it's rather misogynist, Right? And so, but you can't call Shakespeare a misogynist. No, he's the barb. You know what I mean? He's one of the greatest writers of all time. So you can't put those implications on him. So the professor was analyzing Taming of the Shrew from the perspective of a Catholic interpretation and a Protestant by saying that inherently Shakespeare was really crypto-Catholic and he was trying to make an exaggeration against Protestant usage of the hierarchy within the marriage. But the Protestant side is he really believes that this is the way it is. And he spent... 15 minutes showing the difference between the two. So one accusation is Shakespeare is really Catholic, crypto-Catholic, but no, he's really Protestant. Now I'm listening, I'm taking notes. And then it was over, and he's about to dismiss this, and I raised my hand, I'm like, wait, wait, what's the correct answer? And everyone started laughing in the class. Now, literally, they started laughing, and their response was, silly, David. We're not here for answers. We're just here to talk. And then I stopped, and I'm like, you just wasted my day. You know? If I wanted to have a good conversation, I would have sat down with my wife and had like a steak or something. You know what I mean? I would have enjoyed that. I didn't have to do this. But it's incredible how they pursue almost everything in the areas I've studied in English, rhetoric, and comp history. That is that way. Everything is theory. You, it's like, I'm sure you've heard this phrase before, pursuing this knowledge is like being in a dark room with a black cat that's not there. You know what I mean? It's like you're saying they're looking for something in this void and you're searching around and they're like, where are you leading me? I feel like a man in space just floating around with zero foundation. I can't tell you how many times I've heard terribly perverse, shameful things in the classroom. And one of the things I try to tell parents is be very careful when your students, even I don't care if you're an engineering major and you don't have to deal with this nonsense, you still have to take a prereq of English at Fort State, right? And I've sat down and seen children start to slow aspects of rebellion to their parents because they're reading things and they don't have the courage to tell the parents what it is. And so they see this professor who's highly decorated, have a great deal of baubles and degrees, telling him one way. It's like, how on earth do I cover Marquis de Sade with my father and the perversions that's within that literature? There have been times in which I have felt such an oppression in the classroom that I've literally opened up the Bible. And I'll tell you what I read. I read Ecclesiastes. I read Ecclesiastes 12, and I would like to read a piece of this. This has actually happened multiple times. 
in which the teacher's instructor is talking. Remember, this is a seminar, which means there's like eight people around the table, and I pop it open. Remember your Creator. This is Ecclesiastes 12. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark, and the clouds return to the rain, and the keepers of the house tremble, and strong men stoop, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those looking through the windows grow dim. Then the doors to the street are closed, and the sound of the grinding fades. When people rise up, and the sounds of birds pull all their songs, birds, but all their songs grow faint. When people are afraid of heights and the dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire no longer is stirred, then people go to their eternal home, and mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the gold bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel is broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. And I look at my instructor and I say, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. And in that moment, I stop and I sit back and I go, resolution one, I will live for God. If no one else in this room does, I still will. This is the way that we balance it. The way that you balance the evil intent, the way that you balance foolishness that's being taught is to pull closer to your Father where pure wisdom and knowledge resides. And what it does is it doesn't provide me with an incredulity or an agitation. It provides me with a level of grace and love. Our plans must align with God's will. We must seize the opportunity to see the aspects of God's glory, and it's not by us. There's this Latin phrase, non nobis domine, non nobis se domine, to da gloriam. Not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to thy name we give glory. Because if we jump then to Ecclesiastes 12, 13, it says, Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the master. After going through Ecclesiastes, which is really kind of like, hey, listen, bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. You know, there's a level of chance in life. There's some things that you can't always plan for. But do you know what's how you live your life? Fear God and keep his commandments. This, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Why should you be concerned with the way you spend your time? Because the days are evil. Ephesians 5.16, make the most of your time because the days are evil. But evil can be overcome. Evil is overcome by good. In Romans 12.21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus taught his disciples about redeeming their time how they must work for him who sent me as long as the day is because night is coming where no one can work. Our example is Christ. And if you look at Christ's life, how is it that he utilizes time? Is our conclusion was he was faithful? And the answer is yes, he was faithful even unto death on the cross. Why was he sent? And Christ says, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also for I was sent for this purpose. Christ spent 33 years on this earth and he changed the world forever because he utilized this time that was pleasing to his Father. 
Be conscious of the fact that you may not have another day. Live, uh, we should live uh, in a pursuit of God in the time that we have. In everything that we do, we have to understand that there is an eternal reward. But that was done for selfish reasons, carnal reasons. They burn up and they blow away. In your quiet time, in your prayers, I wonder if our prayers sound similar. You know, we use different words, different phrases. Maybe we structure them differently, but our heart, heart is in the same place. But I can't tell you how many times I keep it so simple and it's just like, God, help me. It doesn't have to be flamboyant or flowery. It doesn't have to be really intellectual. God, help me. Just help me. And he does. Every time. Every time. We just start every morning committing our day to the Lord and ask Him to help us. To realize there's an internal significance for all that we do. That we, that we can, in an innocuous day, bring honor to God. To help someone. To utilize our time to produce life. To be productive. I can very simply see if I'm doing that correctly with whether or not I produce life in my wife. That's such an easy standard to notice. To whether I'm not someone who's using my mouth to tear her down, even if in my mind I think it's justified. I can't tell you how many times I'm like, hey, listen, you committed something to me and you didn't follow through with it. The justices in this would be whatever. But I've seen the moments even with my children in which they sit there and they know that they've done something that they shouldn't have. And my first goal is restoration to them. Son, what have you learned? Let me lift you up. And the reason I do that is because that's what God does for me so often. But I'm not, there's only one good father. But what I can do is that I can see the gifts that have been provided for me. And I can invest them in promoting the kingdom of God. And I can do that by volunteering, serving the church, leading a ministry, do, be, taking part in Bible studies, going to the jails, going to the prisons, going to where God has called us to do, knowing what's approved unto Him, and all the ways that we can look and see, and like, I know God's pleasure in this. I was sharing this, I had a blessing of having lunch with uh, the pastor last week. And we were talking about the prison ministry. And I said, you know, who did I say my closest friend was? Alan Northrup. Alan and I are not the same person. We have very different personalities from each other. Distinct different personalities. But what unites us is our mission. What unites us is when we are together... We're working towards the kingdom of heaven, the glory of God, and we've witnessed it together. We have been in the prison with killers. Killers. And I'll look to him like, did you just witness what I just saw? And we'll go home laughing and bubbly and happy. And what unites our friendship is our ministry in God. It's not the Gators, it's not Florida State, it's not football, it's not basketball, it's not because I drive a nice car and we're into cars. It has nothing to do with God. The central point is God. And that's the relationship I enjoy having with Alan. That's the relationship I would like to have with my wife. It's the relationship I would like to have with my children. And the reason why I'm so blessed with this church is this is the relationship I have with the leadership in the congregation here. We don't know what our life will be like tomorrow. We know that it's vapors. 
Our money and our possessions will be given to someone else. Our jobs will be filled by other people. Our family members will remember when we're gone will remember us fondly, but they'll move on. All that will remain on our lives on earth is what we did here as an investment for eternity. That is all that will remain. Man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God, keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. Resolution one, I will live for God. Resolution two, if no one else does, I still will. Brothers and sisters, let's close a prayer. Lord, you're a good father. Lord, you're a good teacher. In your patience, Lord, Lord, please teach us how to utilize our time. Show us areas in our life that we're neglecting, either privately, personally, within our work. We know, Lord, that you have called us to invest our time into relationships, to work hard in pursuing you, Lord. But we need your refreshment, Lord. We need you that when we're tired, Lord, and we feel like we're overworked, Lord, how faithful are you to come and to restore our strength. Lord, you lovingly remind us that it's you who control everything, that it's you who provide for every need. Then an exercise of your wisdom, Lord, is to show us how to regulate our time. Lord, what more precious could there be than when we wake up to spend time with you and your word, to make moments during the day to spend time with you and your word, before we put our head down to sleep to spend time with you and your word. Lord, it's not that it's valuable. It's necessary. May we reflect on the responsibilities that we have, Lord. May we encourage each other continually. In everything we say, Lord, it may be edifying. And in all things that we do, Lord, when you find us ever faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.